Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. We are so grateful for you all. Thank you for subscribing and sharing and downloading. Thank you for telling your friends and family about uh, some of the work we've been doing, some of the people we've been interviewing, just trying to educate myself and all of you all and just have good conversation. And today is, is along those same lines. See, we'll be interviewing a, a good South Carolinian from Gaffney, South Carolina. Her name is Amber Littlejohn. But she's the executive director of the Minority Cannabis Business Association, and she's going to talk about cannabis legislation and equity in the cannabis industry for entrepreneurs of color. But before we get to Amber, I wanted to talk about Richard Sherman, and I know we've seen him in the news a lot, and I wanted to talk about his his recent arrest um, and the domestic incident that happened last week at his in-laws. In case you missed it, last Tuesday night, Sherman was caught on his in-law's ring video in a verbal dispute with his in-laws and his wife. His wife called 911 only to have the uh, dispatcher deal with her in the worst possible way. I won't replay the 911 dispatcher call, but in addition to the tragic events that sparked the call in the first place, it's also a sad commentary on where we are as a country and that as his wife was talking to the 911 dispatch, she asked the dispatch to convey to the police not to shoot her husband. So in addition to worrying about her own life, her father and uncle's life, and her husband's life, she also had to be concerned that the police she's calling to help defuse the situation don't escalate it themselves and kill her husband. It's obvious that Richard Sherman is going through something, and our prayers go out to April and Richard Sherman and their family. I can only hope that the NFL and the 49ers organization are helping him get the resources he needs. And while my expectations of the NFL are low in terms of its regard for giving its players the mental health support they need that could reduce the number of incidents like these, I would like to think that everyone who cares about Richard Sherman is doing all they can to ensure that this is the last time we see something like this. Our prayers go out to the Sherman family, and that's that on that. Now on to our show with Amber Littlejohn. I do want to welcome to the Bakari Sellers podcast, uh, one of my homegirls. We were just talking about it. We, we might speak a little Gaffanese in here, uh, but I want to welcome Amber Littlejohn to the pod. What's going on? Hey, thank you, Bakari. Uh, great to be here with you this afternoon. It's, it's definitely been a, a festive week for me here in, in D.C. I know. Talk a little bit about what your role is right now. And let's just hop into we'll get to some of the questions we ask our guests normally. But I want to talk about this hot topic and where we are. Talk about where we are with marijuana legislation and how that plays into uh, your daily life. So uh, I am a policy attorney by trade. I currently am the executive director of the Minority Cannabis Business Association. And so we are the largest national organization that's actually advocating for minorities to actually take part in, in this burgeoning industry. So cannabis- we, we got to have some, we're going to have Kaya throw in some, some sound effects after that. That's important right there. Shout out to all the work that you all do. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, please. This is, uh, it's my daily bread. And so often in this legalization discussion, we have these kind of free the plant, legalize it activists that have been here for decades doing incredible work. Um, We have criminal justice reform activists that have been doing incredible work. And now in the past few years, we have big corporate cannabis 
But absent from the discussion, often at the state level and the federal level, is us. There is a lot of lip service paid to the participation of our community in this industry. But in terms of who is actually advocating for us and our interests, it is limited. It is a lonely, it's a lonely job. Look, so usually I start the episode by asking this, and because you told folk what you did, I think it's important for you to walk us through the arc of your career. And you're a lawyer by training, and that's and you spent much of your career in Washington at the intersection of law and policy as a lawyer lobbyist. I say lawyer first. Um, walk us through the arc of your career in Washington, and why did you choose to become a lawyer lobbyist? And then why did you choose kind of hemp as, and cannabis as your passion? Well, you know, I started in the dietary supplement industry. I was a business owner and kind of after a measure of success there, I I decided that I wanted to venture into the world of policy. I did this because we were constantly reactionary and and defensively battling regulatory policy. It was devastating the industry. And so I made a decision that I was going to come to Washington and work to kind of change the law. So I started out in dietary supplements. So I've been in the emerging, embattled, scrappy areas of regulatory policy for some time. So So, exciting. So exciting. (laughs) Hey, I whoa, I love regulation. (laughs) Um, And so it was a natural transition through uh, dietary supplements into hemp and CBD and then ultimately into cannabis. And cannabis was really calling me because, you know, I am born from activist parents. And so... While I was a lawyer lobbyist in D.C., there was always that siren call of the cause that was kind of beckoning back to me. And so doing the work that I do now, I really do get to, to kind of exist at, at the intersection of, of both, you know, the policy and politics and also just service to my community. And so do you believe in, and I, I'm assuming the answer is yes, but and kind of explain why, why you've come to that conclusion. But do you believe the cannabis is the next frontier in nutrition and wellness? Absolutely. I mean, we have just started the way that, that regulations and, and research uh, restrictions are today. We are just starting to chip away at the capacity and the potential for this plant to heal. And what we are seeing is remarkable from pain relief to stress relief to, you know, diversion and and getting people off using opioids. So we are excited. We are truly sitting on the on the new frontier of, of, of really wellness. And there are so many delivery methods now that technology is increasing. We are able to get away from smoking methods. Um, So it's an exciting time just as somebody who has dedicated their career to health and wellness industries and as somebody who truly believes that this this is a a pathway also to help restore our communities. So I I must admit there are a few things that most of my listeners and most people know about me. One is that I suffer from anxiety. And so marijuana, cannabis helps that exponentially. Hemp, CBD, the the whole spectrum thereof helps that exponentially. Two... I actually uh, am on the board of a CBD company, but I also grow. Um, We have a grow in Oklahoma. We have manufacturing in uh, Oregon, dispensaries in Oregon, working on Arizona and New Jersey. And so I have to say that I'm a little biased, but I truly believe that this is the next frontier for people who look like me and you. But also that brings me to my next question, which is what exactly does your organization do and how does it help uh, minority cannabis uh, dispensaries, farmers, manufacturers, etc. 
So we, we're kind of twofold. Uh, we are very well known for our policy and advocacy. So we have model policies uh, all the way from the ordinance level through state policies, all the way through federal policies. And we are an advocacy organization. So as I said, when it seems like nobody is advocating for us in these discussions, we are there. Pick up the phone, call me. We'll be there. We'll empower you. Um, so we have an advocacy, but then we also do resources and programming. And that is something that is a gigantic need because when you're not just dealing with a community that has been economically disadvantaged, um, socially disadvantaged, and then thrusting them into a high stakes competitive business environment, you're also doing it with a product that is heavily regulated. So mm. the technical barriers to entry and sustainability within the industry are great. And so it's really our job and our mission to democratize that. Mm. We want to get people the education. For instance, yesterday we just did uh, a panel and a webinar on business planning. Um, next month we'll be doing two legal workshops on corporate formation and partnerships. So all of the information and that, that first $5,000 you need to put together, you know, your corporate structure, but you don't have an attorney to pay or you don't have somebody to write your business plan. We're trying to democratize that and get that to people so that we can create the most opportunity for our community from the point of application all the way for the success of the business. Well, what are some of the unique challenges that minority cannabis entrepreneurs face? And if you could talk about some of the larger players in the cannabis industry that minority entrepreneurs are competing against and why a group like yours is necessary to be that voice for black and brown cannabis entrepreneurs. Yeah, well, I mean, the challenge, the biggest challenge that everybody, that minority businesses are facing, and this is applicants and licensees, is capital and access to capital. We are talking about applications where the application process to submit a, like a competitive application can cost you anywhere from a few hundred thousand dollars to millions, like two to three million dollars to submit an application. Um, a good example of that right now is for the state of Connecticut. If you want to bypass their lottery system, you can pay $3 million. And so these are, okay. and that's, that's, a, that's a bit, that's a bit much. Now I will tell you that, you know, if you are growing in a state like Connecticut, you'll probably make about four and a half million dollars a year with a steady grow, but you still got to have 3 million to start. You need a little loan from daddy. Yeah. That's just the application fee. That's not actually getting your business up and running. And a good example of, of really where this has gone incredibly wrong uh, is the city of Los Angeles. They opened up a, a licensing round. They required people to hold commercial property. And during this social equity round, it ended up going two years just due to blocks and legal challenges and stalls by the city so that social equity applicants were carrying commercial property in Los Angeles for two years with no promise of actually getting through. And then even putting together the team and having the resources to be competitive on paper is again, something that's going to cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars. So we're looking at, you know, so that is going to be the, the biggest stumbling block. And when the only funding because of federal restrictions on banks lending to cannabis, which we will get to the safe act and, and the performative equity that my United States senators are participating in because we need to pass the safe act, but we'll get there. Yeah. So when we're looking at that, what we're left with are large multi-state operators who are like, here, come in, I'll give you that money. Just give me control of your company. Or you have investment companies that are still going to be kind of beholden to shareholders um, and less than scrupulous. So if we really want to get beyond performative equity and, and 
it looks good on paper and it sounds good to actual meaningful rights of ownership. Uh, you're a lawyer. So taking you back to that bundle of property rights sticks. Yes, yes, yes. It is a robust bundle, not just, you know. Not just a home goods, fake flowers looking. Hey, hey, sometimes I was about to say something. Slow down. (laughs) I'm also a licensed hemp grower in South Carolina. And I know I've noticed and I'm preparing for today that you're also a director at the U.S. Hemp Authority. What is the U.S. Hemp Authority and what are some of the big picture challenges of the hemp industry? Mind you, I ran into a resource problem and a skill problem. My business partner and I found two farmers that were utilized by every hemp farmer in the area who had the expertise because people don't know that it's a very difficult crop to grow. Um, And we in South Carolina, we have not had many successful grows and I don't have six hundred thousand dollars to waste. So but what are some of the bigger picture challenges you see from that industry and, and the role that you play in addressing that access for minorities in particular? Yeah, so the U.S. Hemp Authority is a standard-setting organization and a third-party certification organization. So with this giant influx of products that are coming to market with CBD and you're you know, seeing them on clearance shelves and you're like, does this work? What does this do? It's an organization that actually comes along and sets standards for product quality um, to really help consumers be able to identify what has been tested, what is going to be safe, what is going to be made by a reputable company um, that is using practices that are in line with uh, the standards set by industry. In terms of the biggest challenges for minority operators in the space, it's really a lack of clarity around the regulatory framework creates a situation where the risk is high and lenders are unwilling to, to give and people are unwilling to invest in kind of smaller businesses. Um, And as you mentioned, the technical expertise is a big, giant one because it boils down to plant quality. Because if you're going to be dealing with a smaller scale grow or a smaller scale product, you want this to be boutique. So that means that the quality of your product would want to improve, the processing methods be pure. And so this is, again, something that we are looking to direct both through my work with the Hemp Authority and with the U.S. Hemp Roundtable. I actually uh, worked with the Roundtable to start their Minority Empowerment Committee, where we have actually been going out and providing education and resources to the minority uh, hemp community. And so the education, the expertise, um, and connecting people. The other big thing is, is network having somebody to sell your product to. You may have biomass and you don't actually have somebody to sell it to. So being able to build the network, both to support, mentor, and also just buy product and and assist. Um, So that has been a top line priority for us uh, on the hemp side. And it's been a great partnership actually because we're able to work with them through MCBA because we actually have quite a few folks with us that that are in that industry as well. See, my my biggest problem with hemp was that we are able to identify great seed um, and we have someone to buy the product, but the middle stage of the grow has proven to be the most difficult. And we've had farmers with some tragic tales of losing millions of dollars in a grow because the the soil may have had a a oil or a gasoline in it and it destroyed. It was just, it's been a mess to say the least. Yeah. So, and especially when it comes to contaminants and then testing correct. on the back end and yes. being able to manage your land, it is, uh, it is definitely, um, it is a, it is a journey, but that is exactly why 
it is important that we are connecting people in our community. I mean, what, what to me, as a, as a woman who's replaying in South Carolina, nothing feels better than the idea of my folks being able to grow and farm hemp on their own and grow and prosper and feed their families in South, in South Carolina soil. So we want to make sure that we are providing them with the expertise and resources. And hemp has its own, own history, you know, uh, and its own connections to slavery and so and direct connections. Um, yes. So it's really important. And, and I'm encouraged by the fact that the hemp industry has really made that a priority. So let's fast forward to current events. People want to know they want to they want your breakdown and analysis. There was big news in the cannabis industry this week. Senator Schumer, Booker and Wyden proposing the Cannabis Administration and Opportunity Act. What does the bill do? So the bill itself would deschedule cannabis and essentially create the pathway for the legal cannabis industry and do so with equity and justice being out front as issues, which is encouraging. so it's, it's undoubtedly an historic moment. You have the leader of the Senate majority leader. You have the chair of house finance coming out and standing in favor of legalization. Um, you know, it's promising that this is a discussion draft because that means that there is going to be opportunity to engage. And so far the opportunities have been meaningful. This discussion draft um, really kind of put back in place some language for minority operators that have been removed in other comprehensive legislation, because there tends to be, again, there is a tendency for both at the state and federal level to jettison the needs of the minority business community within cannabis for things that are more politically expedient. I love the way that you are parsing and nuanced and watching your lawyer, lobbyist, politician uh, communication skills is, 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 is brilliant. Let me, let me be blunt though, if I may, and I may be wrong here, but I, one of the things I learned in the legislature was how to count votes, but all the reporting on this bill seems to suggest that the bill doesn't have the votes. So if the votes aren't there, what's the benefit of proposing this bill? I think there are holistic, I think there are two benefits. So again, lawyer, lawyer lobbyist. Um, There are two sets of benefits. Of course, there is the holistic benefit that we are moving this discussion along. One of the things that I really do like about the bill is it's forcing the conversation around what the actual framework will look like. And it is causing industry to say, hey, this is what we want, don't want. It's causing the agencies to, to have this really tough conversation. And so that is a great thing. It is also laying the groundwork for equity and justice being at the cornerstone of this. But at the end of the day, if you're also looking at the more individual benefits, this is a very hot, progressive, friendly, politically sexy issue, especially when it's packaged in a way that is soundbite news friendly. And this idea of like justice versus, you know, David and Goliath, you know, corporate cannabis versus you know, justice is is a narrative that sells, but it's actually not one that is representative of the actual struggle happening right now. I, I got one legislative question for you before I get to my, my the meat of my selfishness for making sure that we got you on today. I called Jared and I was like, I need her on because this is the perfect time to talk about this issue. But given that we've seen lots of states legalize, red states legalize marijuana, 
Why hasn't that translated into more Republican support for the legislation? And what are their reasons for opposing legalization and taxing it the way you do cigarettes and alcohol? I mean, the underlying issue is that we criminalized cannabis based on racist policies, and we still have not moved away from implementing and sustaining racist policies. So it's going to be hard for us to move away from the criminalization of cannabis in red states because this is so intrinsically tied to the war against people of color. Um, I mean, so, you didn't know that you didn't know that marijuana was a gateway drug. They didn't teach you that. I mean, that is proven to be untrue. But that is, still, <laughs> you know, that that whole reefer madness. They're going to come for your daughters thing really still holds true. Do you know and how crazy it is for me, though, Amber? Like I represent individuals in federal court all across the country who still get not only charged. I actually got a plea offer with marijuana in it which was absurd, but they get their their penalties enhanced for marijuana. And their lawyer sells marijuana to himself and then sells it out. I grow it in and sell it to my dispensaries, and I'm considered to be an entrepreneur. I mean, it's just so fucked up the way that our laws are. And we... Oh, we and then just the grotesque watching, uh, because the vast majority of our industry are now wealthy white males... Um, just because the number one way into it is either private equity money or generational wealth. So watching this community become rich and watching folks still be incarcerated, uh, you said you have ties to the industry in Oklahoma with LaRue Bratcher, um, who is being deprived of his right to use, uh, you know, the castle doctrine and self-defense after two nights in a row defending his, his dispensary. Um, he's unable to use that because he couldn't come up with $100,000 to do the upgrades required to renew his license. So he is being charged as a felon. All of his otherwise would-be legal had a license, but it expired. Cannabis operations are now being treated as a criminal enterprise, and he is facing life in prison for defending himself. So these are... <laughs> so on one side, we have that, and then on the other side, we have it kind of Canabro, make it rain, you know, printing money. And, and it's frustrating. It's, it's really frustrating to watch. Yeah, that's depressing. Talk about one of the things that people don't know is how much it costs me to bank my weed and how banks are. I don't want to say they're taking advantage of it because they are banking for us, but they, they get a premium price. How okay. difficult is it to bank cannabis businesses? And specifically, how does how has the lack of reliable and cost-effective banking and financial services disproportionately impact black and brown entrepreneurs? Because if you think about it, I'm pretty sure that some of the fees that this gentleman we, we were just discussing paid to banks, he could have used that to make sure that his license didn't lapse because these fees do run upwards of hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Yeah, there are there are two pieces to that. So I will handle the like, banking products and, you know, products and services side, it's extraordinary, extraordinarily expensive to even open an account. You're normally going to have a, a big due diligence process, which is going to run you anywhere from about 10 to even $30,000. That is just to apply and have them do the background check to get the account. And then your account will every month be a percent, a gross percentage, a substantial percentage of what you're making. Um, sometimes flat fee on top of flat fees, $2,500, $5,000 a month. Those are just your banking fees. 
not including the additional fees. You have limited access to services. You can't use credit cards. You can't do electronic transfers. Can't wire money nowhere. <laughs> so what, it, what ends up happening is we have a, a very cash-heavy system. And if we are building locations in areas where we want to reinvigorate the community, you are mixing large quantities of cannabis, large quantities of cash in one place, in a place where people are economically desperate. It has proven to be a recipe for disaster all over the country. We have people killed. We have had people held up. Um, So on top of the cost, we have the human cost. Uh, I have a member who is opening a dispensary in South Central um, shortly, and she has spoken to me about her fears being a single mother and whether or not she will come home at night because she is operating in this cash-only business and she is a target because of that. And then on the flip side, you have the, the funding aspects and the few banks and financial institutions that do lend do so at an extraordinary premium. It often leads people going to private lenders and they themselves are going to exact a really mm-hmm. from you. I have seen it cost people all management rights, you know, any sort of IP rights. Uh, I saw one contract that had a, um, a forced sale provision where a license in the city of Los Angeles would be forced to be sold for $200,000, which is not even a tenth of the value of that license in that market. I mean, it's insane. Yeah. So my last question for you is forward thinking. Give us some hope. But I I frame it (laughs) somewhat rooted in despair. But President Biden reiterated this week that he doesn't support legalizing marijuana, but does support decriminalizing it, whatever that means. But can you help our listeners make sense of what the difference is and why it matters, particularly for us as minority cannabis entrepreneurs? And what does 2022 and beyond look like for the field? And will we ever get it rescheduled? Does that does it does a law have to be passed for it to be descheduled or rescheduled? Can you do that with the stroke of a pen? What does that look like going forward? So going back to your your first question, decrim versus uh, legalization. Decriminalization would mean that it's just not a it's not a crime to to have it, um, but it doesn't create a legal market. And this is particularly troublesome for us because. As we're seeing in the district, for those of us here in D.C., the gray market, the gray market, we have a gray market. And when you can possess and use, but you can't sell that often, that risk often falls to our community. And we end up continuing to be disproportionately policed for that. So it is really important that we do legalize and legalization is, is the ultimate destination. Um, as to whether that can, the descheduling, meaning taking it off the schedule of controlled substance alongside heroin and crack cocaine. Mind you, Caucasian people cocaine is actually lower on the schedule than marijuana, as is methamphetamines as well. But um, So mm. mo- removing cannabis from the schedule of controlled substances so that it is not, um, so that we are not in the position where we are treating it. As illegal, and we can open up the market um, and be able to actually open up the, the sale. Um, that can, there are ways that that can be done. It will not be done through an administrative process. Um, 
that won't be done, obviously, because the Biden administration. Could he, though? Could he could he, though, with the stroke of a pen reschedule? I think that's a little bit up for debate. There are potential methods for him to do that uh, through DEA. That's right. Yeah. But some people disagree with that. Um, But they're yeah. But the problem with that and this is the, the circular logic is that when cannabis was placed on the schedule, it was done in contravention to the evidence that existed. Nixon's experts came back and they said, hey, no, you, you shouldn't you shouldn't criminalize this. This is it's not it's really it's not that serious. And he was like, no, I don't like your answer. I don't like black people or hippies. And I want to figure out a way to put them in jail. So he went back and tried to, again, figure out how to do that and redid the report. And so you're talking about um, cannabis being scheduled in contravention to science. But now we are stuck in a position where they want robust scientific data to be able to remove it, but you can't study it because it's on the list. So you can't remove it. You can't study it because it's not removed and you can't remove it because it's not studied. studied. And so it is absolutely on Congress, on the administration to act and to act swiftly to correct this injustice because it was done and it was done not in public policy, but in fear. And that is, that is documented and, and not conjecture at this point. Well, I am so grateful for your knowledge today. I think we learned a lot. And I just want to say we're very thankful as somebody that you serve. I got to make sure my company is a part of the organization and doing what we need to do to support. But thank you so much, Amber Littlejohn, for coming yeah. through the Bakari Sellers podcast and helping us unravel and untangle what's going on in Washington, D.C. I look forward to seeing you. And now that we're COVID, uh, hopefully people are getting their vaccines. Now we can go outside. Maybe we'll catch up in D.C. one time soon. Absolutely. I'd love that. Thank you so much. Have a good day. I got to say thank you again, as we do at the top of the show, but just thank you so much for making our show so successful. Thank you guys for tuning in. And while we were on vacation, um, we didn't get a chance to talk about the ESPN controversy, including Maria Taylor and Rachel Nichols. So in case you missed it, uh, rising ESPN, and I don't even like calling her a rising star. I think she's already landed. Maria Taylor, who has hosted the NBA finals and has been a host and contributor for two of the network's most popular programs, College Game Day and NBA Countdown was the target of consternation from one of her ESPN colleagues, Rachel Nichols. More specifically, Nichols forgot to cut her camera off, this is what old folk do, during a work call and was caught saying the following about Taylor, taking issue with Taylor becoming the host of the NBA Finals. Quote, I basically finally just outworked everyone for so long that they had to recognize it. I don't want to be then a victim of trying to play catch-up For the same damage, and this is in quotes, around the lack of diversity of ESPN that affected me in the first place. You know what I mean? So I'm just trying to be nice. This note is for my white liberal friends, in particular white women. Note Nichols' choice of words, a victim. The assumption here is that Maria Taylor isn't qualified for the same role as Nichols, which is false, and that Nichols herself didn't benefit from ESPN's diversity push. The irony of affirmative action and diversity initiatives is that it benefits white women the most. And you all can't theoretically like diversity when it's beneficial to white women advancing, but pull the ladder up when black folks potentially benefit. And playing the victim here was peak privilege. I don't know Rachel Nichols at all. I've never met her. But I have seen this reverse fake victimhood often. And it's never a good look for anybody. And because of how this has played out, 
Rumor has it that Taylor may be taking her talents to NBC Sports and leaving ESPN. So everyone loses except Maria Taylor, whose star keeps rising, which is something we should all cheer on. And that's that on that. We'll see you on Thursday. We got some dope, dope special A-list guests coming up soon. Have a great week. See you guys soon.